Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the politics comedy podcast that at the moment is best consumed within minutes of opening, or it may rather rapidly sour. This is episode 155, I'm Tina Duyeb, and after a week of humiliating parliamentary losses, Prime Minister and personification of that road sign that warns you of falling boulders, Boris Johnson, has suspended Parliament earlier than expected, desperately hoping that the same tactic he employs with all his illegitimate children will somehow work with MPs. If he just ignores them, maybe they'll all leave him alone and go away. Johnson is still insisting that a no-deal Brexit would be a failure, but judging by the past week where his party have lost their majority, the government lost several major votes, and Johnson repeatedly lost his ability to make any sense whatsoever, this might just mean that it'd entirely be in keeping with his theme as leader so far. A lot can happen in a week, or in Boris's case, a lot can't happen. And long story short, we start this week with Parliament closing, everyone that wants an election not wanting one, everyone that doesn't want one wanting one, the Brexit party offering the Conservatives an electoral pact anyway to form some sort of axis of feeble, the government having no majority but still being in charge, and it being illegal not asking for an Article 50 extension, but Number 10 saying they won't do that anyway, making it the first time criminals have been in charge of the country. Or at least ones that we knew were criminals at the time. On the plus side, if this all ends with Boris Johnson in a cell, we might finally have a Prime Minister who's keen to work on progressive prison reforms. Yes, this season of British politics has really picked up with an explosive gripping storyline, despite a rather rocky start with too many unbelievable characters. It's a lovely arc to have the Prime Minister, someone who the audience have always been aware was all stupid hair and no trousers, suddenly suffer defeat after defeat and have his bravado crumble like a tantruming toddler who's just realised that when his parents gave in and said, fine, you don't have to get in the car, they did just drive off without him and now he's in the park all by himself with no food, no money and a very shitty nappy. Now Johnson's gone and shut up shop rather than deal with all the customer complaints that what he's peddling is complete tat. And Parliament is suspended till October the 14th as Boris does the political equivalent of closing his eyes, sticking his sausage fingers in his ears and humming an old xenophobic poem hoping it'll all go away. There are many lessons to be learned from all of this. Lesson one, for example, is that telling your MPs that if they don't vote with you that they'll lose the party whip isn't that much of an incentive to do what you say if not having anything to do with you and not voting for something they hate are definitely both much better options. 
It's amazing Boris learned nothing from his predecessor and badly taxidermied terror bird, Theresa May, when she offered everyone a deal that absolutely no one wanted, and they all said, no, it's okay, you can shove that in your pie hole. But instead, maybe Boris supposed his charm, wit, complete lack of preparation, an entire absence of having a clue what to do, and his hiring of Dominic Cummings, politics's very own lemon grab, drunkenly running round shouting at ministers that he has no idea who they are, that somehow all that might just persuade Conservatives that having no medicine would be worth it. Starting with MP for Bracknell and what if Michael Douglas ate more and took MDMA, Dr Philip Lee, who crossed the floor as Boris was already floundering at Prime Minister's questions, and joined the Lib Dems right in front of him. Imagine that blow to your confidence. It's like if one of your gang at school who used to happily cheer as you all threw stones at the poor kids, suddenly, during break time, in front of everyone, went off to snog that boy who keeps getting his head stuck in the railings. That was the government's majority instantly gone, quicker than most of Johnson's London mayoral projects could lose money. But even while witnessing that happen, Boris announced that, like Churchill, he would never surrender to the bill to block a no deal. Which was very apt, as Churchill is also a dead prime minister. Luckily, he didn't need to surrender as the government were just outright defeated as 327 voted for the emergency motion to block no deal and only 299 voted against. That's pretty much a 52-48 split, so it's odd that Boris didn't just accept it and move on. 21 Tory MPs voted against the government, including the father of the house and haunted pillow, Ken Clark, Churchill's grandson and what if orcs got tired, Sir Nicholas Soames, and former Chancellor and AWOL shadow, Philip Hammond. So that's Johnson being rejected from his hero's family, his political dad and spreadsheet Phil, the latter only really being a blow if Johnson wanted to keep anything on the table. Some of those Conservatives knew they would oppose the PM as soon as Boris announced the threat of whip removal, but others, like background Star Wars character and MP Gutto Bebb, said it was the arrogant, out-of-touch speech from the hooded claw and leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, that did it. Creepy Wand Mog had told Parliament that what they were proposing was constitutionally irregular, because apparently going through the correct means to oppose a bill isn't usual fare, but it turns out several of Mog's colleagues thought that actually suspending all of Parliament to push through something no one likes and summoning up John from Peter Pan, but when he's older and scarred by life, just to vouch for it, is far more bizarre. Mogg was slammed by several MPs and many online for arrogantly reclining during the debate, but it's really not unlike him to be lying in Parliament, is it? Weirdly, hate Veruca Ian Duncan Smith didn't make anyone resign, despite sitting in the Commons and picking his nose throughout. Still, I guess he's got to get ready and have all the food he needs for a no deal, right? Once the valve had been opened, Tories couldn't stop pouring out of the party, with another six going over the week, including Boris's younger brother and failed clone Joe Johnson, who resigned as Universities Minister, saying that he'd been torn between family loyalty and the national interest, which shows immediately why they don't get on as siblings when those are the two things the Prime Minister has never ever been concerned with. Work and pensions secretary and that neighbour who invites you to local events but also keeps reporting you to the police for being too noisy, Amber Rudd, also resigned on the weekend because, as she said in her letter to the PM, of Brexit inaction and a lack of negotiations. It does make a change that someone in the DWP quit their own job because someone else couldn't be bothered working. So the government now have a majority of minus 43 and a large number of those former Conservative MPs will be standing at the next election without their party. Still, maybe that's what Boris meant when he goes on about Brexit protecting Britain's independence.
The second lesson of the week is realising that it's probably best not to call someone else a chicken when you've had to shut down your entire place of work just to stop people being mean to you. Now look, I won't pretend it's not been a confusing week. I mean, there's been a spending review where Chancellor and Giant Hazelnut, Sajid Javid, announced loads of money going to loads of things in what was less of a budget announcement and more a desperate attempt to get people to like him and his party. You want more money for the NHS? Oh, you've got more money for the NHS. More for defence? Yeah, you've got it. And how about we do lunch on Sunday? Yeah, you'll hang out with me. Wait, I'll get the drinks. No? No? Okay, what if I said we put more money in education? Then you'll come around and tell my mum I'm definitely popular at school? Yeah? Yeah? It seems access to the magic money tree has been reinstated, but while Javid promised to turn the page on austerity, he hadn't pointed out that the rest of the book isn't finished yet, and like a George R.R. Martin novel, could go absolutely anywhere with all sorts of gory twists and a no-deal shitting all over everything, and Javid having to come back and say it turns out it was a choose-your-own-adventure novel about austerity after all, and sadly we have to return to the beginning. After that, Johnson told Parliament he didn't want an election, but then said there would have to be one as no deal had been blocked. And then Labour leader and judgmental scallop Jeremy Corbyn said he did want an election, but currently didn't want one, thanks, or at least not until the motion to block no deal becomes law. And that prompted Johnson to call Corbyn a chlorinated chicken, which is odd, as that means he's something that Johnson has promoted as part of trading with the US, so it could be it was a compliment. But it seems unlikely, as the Tories then churned out mocked-up pictures of Corbyn dressed as a chicken with the label JFC, which again is an odd choice of restaurant to copy when KFC had a chicken shortage last year due to supply issues, something that would likely happen again under a no-deal. The whole thing felt like a mega Freudian projection of the type you could pop in on an IMAX screen. Johnson's aide said the reason he wanted an election by October the 15th is that it could limit the amount of students able to vote because I don't know about you, but a democracy is only a democracy if those who will be affected by most future decisions don't get any say in it. I mean, really, based on the fan base of the Johnson government right now, if Boris really wanted positive results, he'd only have an election late on a Tuesday morning with ballot boxes strictly in home counties' Waitrose stores. Actually, I say that, but the Tories are still somehow ahead in the polls, with only polls showing what an election after October 31st would be like having Labour in the lead. Maybe it's because there's public confidence that Johnson is able to push Brexit through, and as soon as he does, he can then fuck off. Yep, everyone in Parliament seems very clear that he's so shit that it's better for everyone if he remains in office, as chances are nothing will happen while he's there. He's basically Schrodinger's Prime Minister, in that he's both doing something about Brexit and definitely not doing anything about Brexit. And ultimately, most people would prefer him to be sealed in a box and not hear from him either way. Lesson three would be to be careful about what photo opportunities you choose, as the past week saw Boris get heckled in Morley by a man telling him he should be in Brussels, which I'd like the default response to Johnson to be, even when he's not Prime Minister. You should be anywhere but here. There was a picture with a bull which either screams a lack of self-awareness or too much of it but in a smarmy way where everyone still hates you for knowing it. But the worst was when the Prime Minister stood in front of a bunch of police officers, which was odd not only because he's often railed against PC culture, but also because one of his policies is more police on the front line. And yet there he was, actively wasting their time standing next to him, waffling on incoherently instead of stopping crime. Not only that, but if your government is talking about breaking the law, positioning yourself so it looks like two van loads of coppers are about to take you down doesn't look great. One of the officers behind Boris, a young woman, became unwell during his speech and had to sit down, with Johnson checking she was alright, saying he should wind up the speech, and then carrying on to keep criticising Labour for ages. Then again, maybe this is why all police services have been on Twitter this weekend, telling people what to put in a bag for emergencies, knowing full well that every time the Prime Minister makes a speech, it renders several of their force useless. 
or as Boris said in front of the Yorkshire officers, that he'd rather be dead in a ditch than delay Brexit. Maybe they all visualised exactly how great it would be to get that call out and one of them keeled over in excitement. So... As of recording this, the motion to block no deal by requiring the Prime Minister ask the EU for an extension has passed through the Commons twice, once with an amendment added to it seemingly by accident. Stephen, I'll be lead vampire one day, Kinnock's addition to the bill was that Parliament had to have a vote on the withdrawal agreement, aka May's shitty deal for a fourth time, and as there were no tellers for the no side, it passed immediately. But of course, it wasn't an accident. How can there be no no-tellers when the Commons is always full of naysayers? The government clearly did it on purpose, and I'm now certain that it's only when May's awful deal stops appearing in Parliament that we'll realise that we've actually died, and it was up to us to work out what to change to stop it happening all over again. The whole bill then got through the Lords, and that now means it's law. And various papers have touted ideas as to how the government could subvert that law by perhaps writing one letter to the EU asking for an extension and another saying the other letter was horseshit. Or maybe Boris could write one letter and have his fingers crossed behind his back while he does it. Or maybe he could write the letter in disappearing ink, or even just say it got lost in the post and he didn't remember what was in it, and maybe the dog ate it. It doesn't matter, though, as the government aren't even going to bother with shit excuses for the first time ever, and just say that they won't ask for an extension, meaning that they'll be breaking the law. Though at the time of recording, it does seem like walking plunger and Chancellor of the Duchy, Michael Gove, might be appealing to the European Courts of Justice to overturn the law, because irony has long since died. To be fair, it's a clever move, as if this works in the government's favour, it'll definitely turn many, many people towards leaving the ECJ. Johnson visited the Irish Taoiseach and stock photo of a man who successfully used hair tonic, Leo Vradka, and he told Boris that the manner of the UK's departure will determine whether it's possible for the UK and Ireland to remain allies and friends, which, considering Boris's last week as PM, means finding out whether Ireland will hate him immediately after Brexit or just a bit further down the line when he ill-advisedly threatens them. After doing what looked like he was trying to conduct semaphores, Radka spoke, maybe a sign that Johnson is really flagging. The Prime Minister insisted he has ideas of how to solve the Northern Ireland backstop issue, but he didn't want to share them right now. Yeah, sure, and I bet his uncle works at Nintendo and his girlfriend goes to another school. But Boris did say once again that he didn't want a no deal, it's just that he'll probably not ask the EU for extension, and he's closed Parliament earlier than expected because Prime Minister's questions isn't very fair how they all keep asking him questions and stuff. As this records, the government have just lost yet another vote, meaning they'll have to release the full Operation Yellowhammer correspondence, all about the dangers of no deal, so while chances are they're just a big pile of posts with question marks drawn on them, it could also be that various ministers will be using the parliamentary downtime to delete a shitload of WhatsApp messages and buy several shredders for documents that they can then later claim they were gathering as fuel for fires for when all the heating fucks up. This was followed by an emergency debate put forward by Corbyn on the importance of the government following the rule of law, because that's where we are with British politics now, politely discussing if the potential for authoritarianism is cool with everyone or if it's just a tad out of order. Corbyn started by saying that ministers needed to tone down the rhetoric and that he didn't wish anyone dead in a ditch, even if it's their own doing. And I get that. I mean, if Boris was dead in a ditch, he'd just have somehow managed to avoid PMQs yet again. Debates are likely to go until pretty late tonight, so in order to get this show out on time, a very small prediction for you. Um, it's likely the Parliament will have voted against a snap election by the time you hear this. So, uh, that means that MPs are now off until October the 14th, and that's Boris becoming the first ever Prime Minister to lose their first three Commons votes, not getting an election, a no-no deal, and now no Parliament either, because he did that, and it's his fault. But still, it's really nice that finally we have a British Prime Minister that emulates proper British values by, you know, losing all of the time, and still pretending that somehow it's worth carrying on competing. 
Sort of in other news, former Labour MP and Change UK MP and extra in Netflix's big mouth, Luciana Berger, has now joined the Lib Dems because it seems the Change UK logo was actually just a tracking delivery barcode on all of their MPs as they made their way to the middle road. Sadly for Luciana, she left Labour originally due to all the racism in the party, so it must upset her quite a lot that Paul Whitehouse character Angela Smith has also joined the Lib Dems. That's now three extra MPs for the centre party, one from Tories and two from Labour, so that should provide them with a strong election stance of being for and against austerity all at once. Labour MP, sort of, and the sort of person who definitely call in to talk radio between 3 and 5am, John Mann, has left the party in total shock that no one expected after several years of saying how much he opposes what they do, how much he hates Jeremy Corbyn, and voting against nearly all of their Brexit motions. Turns out he was just waiting for the right job to go to, and it seems that that was with the government as an anti-Semitism Tsar. A job title that feels hugely inappropriate considering how anti-Semitic most Russian Tsars were, but then John Mann was a Labour MP who repeatedly voted against social justice, so I'm sure he'll fit in just fine. And lastly, Speaker John Burkow is going to stand down either at the next general election or more likely and well-timedly for the Conservatives on October the 31st in order, order to spend more time with his family. Well, hello to you. Uh, that intro was most of your life, wasn't it? Uh, who knew that the last week would be such a cavalcade of shittery when it came to Westminster? Oh, all of you? Really? OK, yeah, that's fair. It's genuinely made me wonder if I should do this podcast about something more static and easier to understand, like, I don't know, quantum fluctuation. Or maybe just something less stressful, like a podcast where every single episode I move to a new house. How are you all coping? You all good? You've been enjoying Parliament TV? I think it's one of the few stations I wish had adverts, maybe just of the various businesses MPs lobby for and have investments in every time they speak. Like every time Pretty Patel pauses for breath, they can just chuck in a cigarette commercial or something. Do they still exist? I've got no idea. But as turbulent and increasingly frustrating for podcast rating it is, I have to say, it's fascinating and weirdly exciting, isn't it? I mean, you know, as someone who hasn't voted for a winning team in a long time, watching Boris have his bottom handed to him on a plate time and time again over the past week has been genuinely enjoyable, almost like the sort of karmic victory you'd find only in a kid's film. The crowd realises the loud brutish one is all style over content and really, the only way this would be properly perfect was if Johnson somehow got covered in custard or even better, everyone just pretended they couldn't see or hear him anymore. I mean, either of those absolutely works for me. I mean, actually, that's all unnecessarily vitriolic, isn't it? Uh, and as you'll see later in the show, I'm trying my best not to be too divisive apart from that entire 15 minutes you just heard about Boris Johnson. Um, I did some gags about Boris at a gig on Saturday because, I mean, really, uh, you know, for no other reason than the past week has pretty much been entirely about him as well. He makes a lot of stuff only about him um but i uh, got heckled by someone shouting corbyn's a terrorist which was odd uh, not because i don't think people should heckle with their political views uh, far from it and uh, you know fine to heckle about corbyn i've got gags about labor too haven't really done them this week because uh, it's been johnson time but um it was more that that person felt the immediate need to say rather than laugh at the jokes about johnson just to say well the others are much worse and i think that's sad isn't it you should be able to laugh at your own party as well. Um, that ability has very much died in the last few years and it is a damn shame across the board. People don't seem to laugh at things that they support only at things that they can uh, oppose. I think we should all be able to mock Boris Johnson having a shit week together and if we're not united by that then there's no hope for any of us. Strange, strange times. Um, anyway, we must keep this week's uh, admin brief uh, as there is much to get through. Uh, firstly, thank you for coming back for a listen and please do keep spreading the word about the show. Any tweets, Facebooks, hey, even any LinkedIn's if you're that way inclined and you can speak 
spare two minutes in between advising people, I don't know, the top five ways to impress a houseplant or whatever it is. Um, all of that helps. And it turns out the pod platform that I use is changing the way it monitors listens, which means uh, about 40% of listens for this show will immediately not count, which means I'll take even less pittance uh, from the sort of adverts that you hear than I do already. And it's harder to justify spending so much time on it. So please help me fix that by getting 40% more people involved um, if you can. And if you also can, please donate to the Kofi, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro um, or the endlessly depleting Patreon site, uh, Patreon, Patreon. I know it's in dollars and it's awful. Um, and if that is a problem, then please do try the Kofi one instead as that's in pounds, which you'll probably soon be able to replace with dead leaves or warm breath or something. Um sorry the patreon one though should you be fine with dollars is patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and please if you can review the show too thank you um someone on twitter sorry i can't remember who it was asked why i released this show on a tuesday when it's so often out of date so soon as this week's probably is as well who knows who knows what will happen later tonight or tomorrow um very good question about the tuesdays but whichever day i'd have released it last week it would have been out of date mere hours later uh plus comedy wise there's not a lot of gigs happening on a monday so i can spend time on this show um rather than doing gigs or you know seeing my daughter whereas sadly I have to earn money the rest of the week and ignore my daughter um, in that way so I'm not saying that you should donate to this podcast but if it's suddenly got 10 billion listeners and they all gave me a pound a month then well I'd probably to be honest only do one more month of podcast and then go to Hawaii and buy the moon I mean sorry I mean then I'd definitely consider releasing it later in the week uh, anyway uh, last thing uh, is that the live podcast I'm doing at 2 North Down uh, in King's Cross is now up on their website and I've popped a link in the pod blurb. Uh, it's on October the 29th. Yes, I'll be doing a podcast the day before. No, I have absolutely no idea what we'll be talking about or even if gigs will be allowed by then. Uh, but please do grab a ticket and come along as I'll be planning some very fun things uh, to do. Right, um, on this week's show, uh, there's not much content other than the interview, uh, but I am interviewing Jordan Ryan, who's a journalist and has worked and campaigned for several leave groups. Yes, after a request from um, quite a few of you, actually, I thought it'd be good to ask someone about the views that we do and don't share, and Jordan kindly obliged. Plus, there is a little, very little chat about HS2, because I thought that'd be on the right track for this week. Arf, yes, it's full of jokes like that. No, don't stop listening now. Come back. Ah, that won't count as a listen. Bloody hell. Anyway, here's this. Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. You can't go two minutes without Brexit happenings. But as I say most weeks, nothing is really happening and it still hasn't actually happened three and a bit years after the referendum. It's all been argy-bargy about whether the UK should leave this very second and just storm out without any of our stuff and assume we can definitely live on all our homegrown fruit and veg because there is nothing like a dinner of potatoes with a side of potatoes garnished with potatoes and a dessert of whipped potatoes. Or should we all just remain and make potentially 50% of the country really goddamn angry that their vote they made because they weren't being heard is now not being heard? And is the EU all that good really when you consider the latest ignoring of the Spitzen candidate election methods, the reluctance to help the Catalonians and the way they totally dick the Greeks, even though if it had been ancient Greece they'd probably have loved that and they'd put it on a vase. The issue is, there's little nuance and less room to move than a flat Foxton's advertising. And with all the debates and political decisions, there should be some sort of middle ground listening to what people want and need and working out how to get there. But Brexit instead has brought othering, divisions, accusations of people being traitors or stupid or traitorous stupids or being sponsored by one billionaire or another. Long-time listeners of this show know my views on Brexit. I've candidly mentioned them loads. Um, but to clarify, I voted Remain as I gig in Europe a lot and I like cheese and wine and lots of other reasons as well. But I've also got issues with the EU. I've spoken to people within the EU that have issues with it and really... 
were these different non-austerity based times with a very different government that wasn't now led by a glorified village idiot and it had been suggested that we could leave over 15 years with maybe a clear plan then I might have voted differently. But then maybe also if all that was uh, in order, then the question wouldn't have been raised in the first place. So who is to say? Well, me, I did. I just did it then. But also not me, probably everyone or no one. Anyway, look, this week, as requested by several listeners, and rightly so, I finally got a lever as an interviewee. My ethos with this show is to allow people to talk and to discover opinions and ideas rather than paxman them in a headline-causing way. And frankly, it's silly that while I've had a few Remainers, but also EU policy experts, law policy experts, immigration researchers and more, I've never actually had anyone that said, yeah, but I voted leave because. So, this week, I fixed that by speaking to Jordan Ryan. Jordan is an investigative journalist, but during the EU referendum campaign, he worked for Leave.eu, then Labour Leave and Brexit Central. He made a short film called Lexit about the left-wing argument for leaving, and he kindly agreed to talk to me for this show. As you'll hear, Jordan has various points of view that I don't agree with, but also several that I do, and a genuine concern about the possibilities of a no-deal. There's lots that I didn't ask him about, and perhaps things that I could have questioned him more on, but this was a chat with the aim on finding out his opinions, why and what he wants next, and it was an interesting and really enjoyable chat. After we finished recording, Jordan said, I won't get hate emails from this, will I? And I assured him that you lot are far, far too nice for that. So even if you're a Remainer and disagree, or you're a Lever and still disagree, which is likely, um, these are probably, in a sensible world, the sorts of conversations we should be having, even though potatoes are really great. I mean, they're brilliant. I've, I had some for dinner. Anyway, hope you enjoy. Here is Jordan. So, Jordan, I think probably thing I should start with. Um, we've not had uh, not had a leave voter on this podcast, which is incredibly um, it's incredibly neglectful of me uh, over the course. To be fair, we've had some people that are not either leave or remain, um, but you're the first lever I think that we've had on. Um, so, I think. I should really start with what made you back Brexit originally? What was your reasons for uh, not only voting leave, but also campaigning for it? Um, I think it it started really with the big debate between Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg. Um, before then, I hadn't really given it much thought. Um, but after watching Nigel wipe the floor with Nick Clegg, I think that was the sort of turning point when I started to look into it a bit more and look into what he and other Eurosceptics were saying and, and and when you look at what the EU wants to do you know it, even back back at that time like 2014 there was talks of you know having an EU army becoming more integrated a federal Europe and I thought that's just a, a, a terrible idea and, and I think it was why I ended up working on the campaigns it was really at the height of the migrant crisis um, when it really started to get bad all the EU leaders were on holiday and normally, in like a, a national emergency, leaders would come come together and come up with a solution. And I think it was about six weeks before they decided to call a summit in another six weeks. And I thought, God, these these people are pretty useless. And and I think that their their unwillingness to admit that some, certain things have been a failure. I think that was a big driver because it's. You know, in in domestic policy, you know, if you don't like what the government's doing, you can chuck them out and vote other people in. But there's no real way to do that in in the EU. And yes, we have elections and and things change a little bit. But you know, even even now with the European elections that they've just had, it's probably the most Eurosceptic Parliament ever. But the, the direction's still still the same. They're still going to press ahead with the euro, the EU army, all these things which are going to be a disaster. And ultimately. 
you know, it, an, an argument from from Remain backers was that we have opt outs, but you know, the, these opt outs aren't going to last forever. And how how do you be the the sole country in a block where you're the only one without the currency? And it, it, it was reasons like that I think that really pushed it. And um, you know, when I first became interested in politics, I, I listened to a lot of people like Tony Benn, and and he and he said that you know, if if you can't um, vote out the people who govern you, then you don't live in a democracy. And I think that was that was a sort of clincher for me. And is it, I mean, it's, it's interesting you sort of mentioned Tony Benn. So Tony Benn was, was, was always a Eurosceptic um, and Labour were the people that campaigned against joining the EU in the first place. But then the sort of, uh, it, it, it felt to, to me, and perhaps, you know, this is incorrect, but it felt to me like the, well, I say this, the Leave and Remain campaigns were both fronted by sort of right-wing, <laughs> by right-wing MPs, which meant that it kind of crossed political lines in a way that, no debates had previously and were you where would you class yourself on the spectrum beforehand then if you're listening to Tony Ben would you say you were a left wing uh were you left wing kind of politically um initially yeah um I think everyone in the student days goes through a you know revolutionary commie phase and then um I started working on paying tax and that was a sort of my moment of oh, actually you know taxing is not not a great idea um and, and i think um when i was at, at university I, I sort of had a lot of time to think about things and when i was working on on bigger stories and political stories um i ended up falling in with with more writing because I, I wrote my dissertation on um investigative journalism's role in political scandals um so i got, I got to meet a lot of um Sort of journalists on the right who who broken those kind of stories, um, and, and that sort of helped. I, I'd, I'd say I'm probably center center right. Right, and so did that. I mean, so were you? I mean, you said obviously you watched the the Clegg V's kind of Farage debate, and at the time you were quite impressed with Farage and that sort of because I, I think one of the, one of the issues I had being I, I consider myself sort of left wing. I am left wing. Um, there was I didn't like anybody on either side. <laughs> there was nobody that was speaking to me on either side <laughs> debate, which I found quite tricky at the time. Yeah, well, I, I, th- I think um, I think left wing Eurosceptics were sort of um, dealt a, a blow, not not in the necessarily immediate run up, but um, you know we, we lost two huge figures. Um, you know, we we lost Tony Benn, and then we lost Bob Crow. Um, and I have no doubt that um, you know people forget Bob Bob Crow was a, was a dick, but he was also a ferocious campaigner. Um, and I think because when, when you look at um, the sort of Lex City figures, um, you know th- th- there are some brilliant left wingers, um, but you've also got some people who are very. They're controversial, you know. Pe- people like George Galloway, who are great campaigners, but they're just not very nice people. And and I think um, Remain suffered from not having very likable people too. I I think you know Leave had the sort of charm and charisma. You know, people. I think people tend to like Nigel. I've I've spent a lot of time with him and out on the road with him, and people come up to him, even people who say you know. Um, I, I, I don't support you politically, but, you know, can we have a selfie? And he, he's, he's got that sort of rock star quality where 
wherever he goes, he's mobbed. Um, whereas th- there wasn't really like that with anybody on the Remain side. Co- Jeremy Corbyn was very popular at the time, but the problem was he's he's a stauncher sceptic as well. And, um, and the sort of things I heard hanging around with with the Lexity types is, you know, they fully supported Leave, but they were they were bullied by certain people in the party who said, you know, we'll end your tenure as leader if you don't support Remain, and, and that got the better of him. And one of like the big uh, sort of I think successes of the Leave campaign really was that it sort of positioned itself as being anti-elite. And like the Remain campaign was definitely, you know, it was fronted by Cameron, it was fronted by Osborne, um, it was sort of backed by people with quite, you know, backed by some really uh, wealthy investors. But but the Leave campaign was as well. <laughs> and obviously, as you said, Nigel was very popular, but he comes from quite a wealthy background, has quite a lot of money. What is it that Leave managed to do that meant that, people didn't mind their elitism but minded the other side's elitism um i i think um i think it's because the the leave campaign tapped into a growing largely working class anger like i remember on the lexit shoot we went to we filmed some um people who ran fishing companies in grimsby and one of the guys there he said to us you know we ha- we've had um people from all over the world come to Grimsby and said we had a film crew in last week from China and they said they struggled to find a Remain voter. They were there for five days and they couldn't find a single person who said they were going to vote Remain in the referendum in Grimsby. And I think um, I think Leave tapped into things that weren't being addressed by Remain and there was Remain understood that any day talking about something like immigration, for example, was a win for leave. And when Remain were talking about, um, you know, you're, you're going to be poorer after a vote to leave, when you're telling people who don't have a lot of money anyway, you know, they've got nothing to lose. And leave in those areas, it was like a, it was like a, a rallying cry for huge fundamental change. It wasn't a you know, you you can't tell someone who who doesn't make a lot of money. Oh, you're you're going to be thousands of pounds a year worse off. It's like, oh, we've not got those thousands of pounds anyway. So, and and, and I I think that's why a lot of the the scare stories didn't didn't necessarily materialise because it, it ranged from you know, and and I I do think that there are legitimate concerns about about a leave vote, but you know. Some of the things were ridiculous, you know, super gonorrhea, <laughs> you know, huge recessions, and I'd forgotten the super gonorrhea. <laughs> oh, the, 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 there were some some fantastic ones, but 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 I think that that was a fundamental failure of Remain because it it didn't it just didn't resonate as being as being true. You know, you can you can kind of um things which might be believable oh you know we might have medicine shortages or we might do this and that but when it burged on ridiculous it it was just laughable and that's why it it didn't have the the effect they hoped it would yeah so you you worked for the labor leave campaign and obviously you made your film uh, lexit all about the kind of left-wing brexit vote do you feel that that side of the conversation was focused on enough during the campaign because um it definitely sort of felt from a left-wing point of view that the as we mentioned before it was very uh it was it was farage fronted it was very ukip fronted it was the 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 uh 
you know, the, the official leave campaign was Boris and Gove and very right wing figures. Um, was was that a kind of, you know, was that a point of view that was ignored? Yeah, and I think it was a fundamental error on vote leave. I know they brought like Gisela Stewart in and, and she was she was fantastic, but she was sort of more a Blairite in in a lot of respects. So, so she kind of fit in with that whole neoliberal um, vision for leave. And, and I think it, th- there was a, f- a fundamental issue with leave is that nobody could agree on what it would look like. And and I think it's very difficult when you've got, um, you know, your your Michael Gove, you know, your, your deregulate types. When you then you've got um, your, your your Tony Benz who would you know want to protect workers' rights and and issues like that. It's fundamentally you you can't you know have huge deregulation and also protect workers' rights. You know there has to be trade-offs. And I think they they banked on there being more people open to the, the right-wing view than the left. But that was the whole reason why Lexit the movie actually came to be, because we, when I was working at Leave.eu, we got to see Brexit the movie before it um, came out, that they'd put a lot of money into it. And so we got to see it like two or three weeks before it came out. And I remember sitting there with um, a Scottish colleague, and we, we just kept looking at each other all the way through because uh, first of all, you know, the, the first five minutes were really good. It talks a lot about, you know, what the EU's done to UK fishermen. And then it goes off on this mad sort of 15-minute try out of, you know, the history of regulations and all this crap. And you're thinking, you know, the, the, the people we need to vote for us aren't going to like this, you know, because we understood early on that it was going to be the working class traditional Labour vote that would would swing it for a leave. But when you've got people talking about, you know, there was one thing in, in the in the film I remember particularly objecting to, and it was um, about regulations on on children's clothes. And I could think about that there was a, a presenter who's, I think she, she'd bought her daughter a costume off eBay, like a, a a knockoff one from the Far East, and it didn't, it wasn't to the same stands, and it actually caught on fire. Yeah, it was Claudia Winkleman, wasn't it? I think it was Claudia Winkleman's yeah. daughter. Yeah, and I think you know, people don't want their kids' clothes setting on fire. It's it's not a you know, you've got all these reasons to vote leave. You know, setting your kids on fire isn't—it's it, not one for us. And, and that's, yeah, it wouldn't have made a great campaign uh, slogan whatsoever. <laughs> and so that's so. After that, I I went to Brendan Chilton, the guy who ran there, I believe, and I said, and he's like, "What's up?" And I said, "We've just watched that Brexit the movie," and he was like, "Oh, is it good?" And I was like, "Your voters are absolutely going to hate it." And that's how Lexit the movie came to be because. We we said we we agreed that there needed to be some sort of counter to this, you know, very right wing sort of Adam Smith Institute vision for Brexit because we thought that's not what you know your your white van man in Grimsby is going to want to want to particularly vote for. And how how do you sort of feel about like because the whole way that Brexit is now is is being driven towards kind of No Deal and lots of. Uh, I mean, it's become ever more divisive uh, as the years have, have gone on. And, um, you know, I, I remember you sort of saying to me uh, on, on emails that, that you were more for an EEC-style Brexit. And that was what was originally touted. It was originally touted by Farage. It was originally touted by people like Daniel Hannan and a Norway-style deal. And, that, and that's what we've absolutely moved away from. And how does that make you feel now as a kind of leave voter? Is that what you would have... You know, are you happy with that transition? Well, that that's what I th- I thought would have been the most... 
logical because it just made sense. You know, we we spent forty years, you know, slowly becoming more and more integrated into this thing. The idea that overnight you're going to sort of undo that is is ridiculous. And even um, even what what the government's planning in their deal, they're still trying to incorporate. They're, they're sort of trying to have their cake and eat it, where. Um, you know, a lot of fuss was made about bringing all EU regulations onto the UK statute books. But to me, that made absolute sense. Like, you know, we've not got a body to replace that. And, and you know, the referendum was unusual because normally you have a government or an opposition that supports that cause. You know, like Scotland had the SNP and if yes would have won, they would have implemented that result with, with their own plan. But leave didn't have that and and I thought that would be the way to go that rather than have this this sort of you know a bloodless civil war that we've had over the last few years I thought that's exactly what the government would have negotiated they would have said you know we will because basically what what the government wanted was EA minus free movement that was the whole the whole reason why they didn't go for something like the EA. But I think it would have been a much easier sell to the electorate. And it it would have been something that could have brought Leave and Remain together. Because I think... I, I don't think that everybody who voted Leave necessarily wanted this WTO-style Brexit. And I think it's something that Leave could have... Sorry, Remain could have got behind because it it was still largely involved in the EU and a lot of Remain's argument was about the economy and I remember arguing for this when I was at leave.eu and initially we brought in an expert on this, a guy called Dr Richard North who'd written this plan and his plan was that you stay in the EU for 10 years and you you sort of work work from that um, you know 10 years is a long time, things can change and you know at least then the economy doesn't change because my argument was if if Remain's whole thing is about the economy and you neutralise the argument, if you come, and I wanted us to come out and explicitly say that's what we wanted, because if you say, well, we're going to stay in the EU, so we're still going to be in the single market, you know, you're just chatting shit about recessions and super gonorrhea and all, and all this crap, you know, and Leave could have won by a huge, huge majority, because I think there'd have been enough people who, who've, I think a lot of people voted Remain because of the fear of the unknown. And I think if if you were to say to those people, you know, because these people aren't avid, you know, Europhiles, they don't, you know, dress up in the EU flag and, you know, get a semi when Ota Joy comes on. You know, there are people who, you, you know, there, there was a sort of maybe dislike of Boris and Farage, but they don't have this great love for the EU. And I, and I think that's something that might have persuaded the sort of soft Remainers you know, yes, we're going to leave, but, you know, the economy is not going to change. Um, but <laughs> it, it is what it is. And, and I think um, it's an indictment of that sort of failure to to compromise on. Well, I, I suppose it's a failure to compromise on both sides. And I think Remain missed a huge, huge opportunity by coming out and trying to overturn Brexit. I think that was their fundamental mistake. And I think now, if if Remain would have decided at the beginning to back a softer Brexit, or you know, because it's still respecting the result. 
and and that's something me as, as a leaver would have accepted you know we're out of the eu institutions you know we're not we're not going to be part of this ever closer union and for, for me that was the key yeah i, I think I, I i much like you I, I was absolutely amazed that that wasn't an option that that came forward i, I think personally I, I was a remain voter but mainly because you know, if somebody had outright said, we're going to take 10, 15 years to do this, we're going to, you know, <laughs> we we understand the UK has not really ever been that close to Europe. You know, the Britain's always been an outsider, but we're going to do a 10 to 15 year plan. We're going to stay aligned in Norway style. That would have been very appealing to me, I think. Yeah. And, and the irony is, like, if you look at now, they're still talking about keeping free movement until 2021. And the way government works, you know, you can easily add a couple more years to that. By the time we actually get to... Um, what we would sort of describe as, you know, day zero, you know, at least five years will have passed. And at that point, you're thinking, you know, look at look at what this argument has done to our country over the last five years. All of this could have been avoided. And, and I think that there was a sort of a huge weird pressure at the beginning to trigger Article 50 because of the EU's stubbornness, you know, let's not forget they're not entirely blameless in this. Theresa May did try and negotiate things like citizens' rights. She she wanted both sides to agree, um, you know, unilateral guarantees for for both um, EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU. And every time she tried, the EU would turn around and say, oh, you know, well, there's no negotiation without notification. And that's what's really triggered this, this time bomb, because ideally, and what I thought would have been the logical thing on both sides was that you would have certain agreements in place that regardless of the outcome certain things would be respected so citizens rights would be guaranteed um you know flights would be guaranteed medicines and things would be guaranteed um and and i i sort of scratched my head at how theresa may managed so badly to fuck up like <laughs> You know, the 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 mind boggles and how, and like I, I remember because I I've, obviously I I worked at Brexit Central and it was just, you know very Tory centric so I spent a lot of time in in Tory circles which was weird not being a Tory because I, I sort of see it from from the outside and the way these people fell over themselves over Theresa May was ridiculous and I I remember being when I was at Leeds you know I thought you know she's She's all right. She's nothing special, and but I, I fundamentally didn't, didn't trust what she was trying to do. And even after Checkers, you know, there was still this reluctance in in the Tory party to get rid of her, and they, they left it far too late to change course. And it, it it sort of come as a, you know, at the sort of height of a an identity crisis in the Tory party, where they're they're trying to figure out what they what they stand for. But it's also screwed over what could have been, you know, I, I fully believe that they could have negotiated a, an EEA-style deal, you know, dressed up as something different that they could have sold to the electorate. But it, it was so fundamentally mismanaged. Um, and we're in a position now where the only option Boris has got is to sort of minor changes to that deal, um, which leavers don't like, remainers don't like. And and I, I sort of worry about what's going to happen next, you know, because I, I, I think the, the deal might get over the line because I think enough um, sort of Labour MPs might back it if it's because I think 
this, this whole thing about proroguing parliament, I think it's a a sort of scare tactic so that when when that final um they'll, they'll have another vote on the deal before the 31st and if the options back this deal or we crash out without one i think that might scare enough mps into just getting it over the line but it, it it's not a in my opinion a great a great start so what's supposed to be a, a you know bright and prosperous future to the uk if mps had to be frightened into voting for it it's something that should get a stonking majority in the house they should you know something they could all get behind has been you know this is going to be the, the blueprint for our our future as a country it, it's not a great start if you've got to you know <laughs> frighten mps into backing it it's not a it's not a great deal no 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 i mean it's 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 a terrible image as well for everyone watching it i think that that no one if everyone feels like the people in charge can't agree on it then there's it it doesn't give much faith in the in the in the public either i think um do, do you i i so just do you think that the because to, to me it feels like party politics have been one of the biggest issues in this in that people want their own kind of you know each party wants their own big power grab from this um would you say like in, in your opinion having worked for, for on, on the campaigns and stuff what, what do you feel like has been the biggest mistake or the biggest hurdle in getting brexit through or getting to maybe a reasonable brexit where, where do you start uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry I should, we, we I should say this could be a three hour long interview and uh <laughs> um, i th- i think the, the first fundamental mistake was, I feel, from from Remain. Their, their insistence on cancelling and this and this hysteria um, around it. You know, um, you know, people didn't know what they were voting for. You know, we have to vote again, and um, you know, Russians hacked it and whatever. You know, it, it was ridiculous you know, for, the, for the first few months after, and this this whole idea formed in in the remain sphere that we have to stop this at all costs i think that was a fundamental mistake because because that that sort of cemented this position where their position was we have to stop this and that hardened the leave vote and this is now where you've got the the perspective where your options are really either back that deal have a wto brexit or remain there is no there is no option because both sides have been radicalized against a sort of sensible option and neither side wants to concede and i think you know remain's got this huge energized base now and and they think oh if there comes to a second referendum you know because of all of this we will we will win and remain but i think that's a huge it's a huge gamble on their part and the polls aren't necessarily showing that excuse me the polls aren't showing that that would happen you know the polls largely remain the same as they were on june 22nd um and i think you know leave has been pushed to such a point where you know it's it's almost out of spite that they don't want anything that resembles remain because they don't want to see us oh you know we've backed down we've compromised and and i think it, it's a it's a fundamental mistake on on both sides because I think a lot of what a lot of what people wanted from Leave you could get with an EA Brexit and that sort of placates the remainers. You know, there'll always be a sort of hardcore you know 
Europhiles, but they weren't, you know, they're a minority. Just as once upon a time, you know, WTO Brexit Brexiteers were a, a tiny minority. Um, but but I think this is. Um, I, I don't see an easy resolution that anybody's going to be happy with. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Jordan in a minute, but while there's not much time for a middle bit this week, let's take a very short look at this. There are lots and lots of unnecessary sequels nowadays. Uh, it too doesn't feel needed when there's enough scary clowns on TV already. Why do another Terminator film when it's clear that all it does is give Jeff Bezos ideas? And no, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith aren't bad boys for life. They're very obviously quite tired middle-aged men. But probably the worst and least asked for sequel is HS2. The follow-up to the Channel Tunnel, except instead of connecting countries, it'll just plough through the Midlands, missing out lots of cities, not getting even as far as Scotland, and generally only shaving enough time off your journey for you to have more time sitting at the train station searching for Wi-Fi that isn't there. Transport Secretary and Haunted Gerbil Grant Shapps announced last week, in amongst all the Brexit larks, that HS2 could not be delivered for its original budget of £55.7 billion, and its cost had in fact increased by £22 billion. Plus, on top of that, it's now unlikely to be completed until 2040, seven years later than planned, and by which point it'll just serve as something we can look down on from our flying cars and point and shout what the fuck is that, it looks pointless and expensive. So this has brought talk as to whether or not the project should be scrapped, an independent review and the government saying that they will decide by the end of the year exactly what to do with it. There are very big arguments as to why HS2 should definitely be scrapped, with the obvious being that it's beyond budget and delivery, but also environmentally, while most trains are indeed better than cars or planes, the HS2 somehow manages not to be. The work needed to build it, plus its emissions over time, as HS2 will use 50% more carbon emissions than Eurostar, and the fact there's little evidence that high-speed trains deter people from taking domestic flights, all of those will cancel out any benefits that it's made. Also, in the construction of the thing, it's going to really screw up wildlife in the area, especially when a great running fast train is smacking a ton of badgers and squirrels out the way every single day. 
Several other big problems resolve around whether or not it'd actually bring more work to Birmingham, Manchester or Leeds, or if it'd just mean more commuting to London via those cities. And mostly the biggest argument is, couldn't we be spending £88 billion on improving current transport systems and, well, almost anything else? I mean, you could get a lot of crisps with that money, and then you probably wouldn't have to travel anywhere because you'd have all the crisps. Surprisingly, the companies involved in HS2 disagree and think that by cancelling it, it'll raise costs of future projects. But then they would say that because you're not going to spend £100 million each on bidding for contracts on a thing and then turn around and go, actually, fuck it, let's just tie a skateboard to a horse instead. But there is a real back-and-forth argument about whether or not it'd be worth it. Quite a lot of people still think it would be, including the TUC, because obviously it'll bring a lot of work, CBI, business, British Chambers of Commerce, many Northern mayors and the Lib Dems all saying that it should still happen. Labour have been more critical, wanting to know about its economic and environmental benefits and its governance. So the government commissioned a review last month, which is supposedly independent, but it's headed up by Douglas Overvee, who briefly chaired HS2 Limited and is a pal of Boris Johnson's from when he was mayor. So who knows what the final decision will be, but if the report is fraught with delays, then I guess that won't be a good sign. Opposition to HS2 is increasing, not least from the people whose homes are on the route. And while the review is happening, work is still ongoing and money is still being spent. So hopefully soon we'll find out who exactly HS2 is meant to be for and if spending £90 billion on a fast train that's only going to disrupt hedgehogs is really the best use of that money. Or if the whole idea of HS2 is completely off the rails. Yes, that was all leading to that sentence. Yes, really. No, I bet you're very glad you listened. You're very glad. Very glad indeed. And now, back to Jordan. I was just going to say that, that, that part of what I, I think regularly upsets me and also bores me is the, the, the language, you know, Remainers, the, the sort of hardcore Remainers say all oh, leavers are idiots, leavers are saying all oh, Remainers are traitors, and it's a real othering and divisiveness. But in that situation, you know, is the second referendum the only way to kind of placate this without, you know, when we do have, say, someone in charge who's just kind of, uh, again, going for the big headlines and the quite sort of aggressive politicking is it is the is the most sensible way forward just to say let's just do it again but on the deal and and what happens now or or you know what what would your preferred uh next step be i'm i'm sort of at, the, at that teetering on that point where i think that might be the only option because parliament can't agree and what i was astounded by was if you remember sort of back early in the year which sort of feels like years ago now Parliament had indicative votes on what they might back, and they still couldn't bloody agree. I was astounded, uh, and the way that was handled. And and I thought, well, what they might come back with would be a more sensible. Well, um, you know, you you said you won't vote for anything. Well, why don't we do it where, you know, you'll you'll have votes where, um, sort of rounds of votes until there's something that you'll all back. So if if you won't back no deal, you won't back the deal. You know, well, what are your other options? And you'll just hold a, num- a series of votes on whether you have another referendum, whether you go for a you know uh, an EEA type Brexit, whether you you know revoke Article Fifty and just you know remain. Because um, I think if if Parliament can't decide, then then the the only option is to either have a general election where the parties are specific on what they want. Because let's not forget, in 2017, over 80% of voters backed parties committed to leaving the EU. So the idea that there's not a mandate for it is ridiculous. But if they can't agree on the direction of it, I think, you know, you would probably have to put it back to a referendum. But I 
I I wouldn't necessarily put Remain on that ballot because I think we, we we've already had that argument, you know, Leave and Remain. I think it should be about shaping the direction of Leave, um, where sort of soft leavers like me have the option to back something like EA, and I think that would be the sort of close Remain option for for Remain. Um, but but I think it'd be hugely it'd be hugely divisive. But and I think I think really on this Labour need to get their act together because you know there's been a lot of talk these past few weeks about you know coups and you know the sort of nature of our constitution. And if you look at what Jeremy Corbyn wants to do, you know he's now, how he has the audacity to say, you know, Boris is like a dictator, you know, he, you know, he's an unelected leader and he wants to push this through, but also, you know, make me caretaker prime minister and, and you know, we'll, we'll sort this all out, you know, there's a, there's a huge hypocrisy there and Corbyn's so fixated on becoming prime minister, it's, it's overshow, overshadowing what could be, you know, and if, because I actually think if you look at Theresa May's deal, it's not that different to, to, to the deal he wants to go and negotiate. Like, I I remember asking a, a Labour MP, you know, what what's in Theresa May's deal that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't negotiate? And they sort of looked dumbfounded. And they were like, oh, I, I don't really know. And and I was like, you know, you, you know, when you sort of spend time with politicians, you realise just how fucking stupid they all are, and you think, you know, you're you're paid in a, a phenomenal amount of money compared to the rest of the general population. You know, we pay you to, to do this, and you've not got a fucking clue because you're so fixated on on seizing power. You don't actually realise that Theresa May's deal is pretty much exactly what Jeremy Corbyn would would negotiate, and I, I'm not necessarily opposed to putting a deal to a referendum. I, I just think there needs to be sort of, at, at this point, I think what everybody wants, regardless of what way they voted, is certainty. You know, the idea that, you know, in October we might pass this deal, but then we've got a whole another two years discussing what the future relationship might be. It's just horrible to think about, you know, the domestic agenda has been completely forgotten about and there's lots of other problems in our country besides brexit and i think the general population don't want this issue to dominate the next 10 years of politics um and it's it's frustrating to people like me who would have backed a year where you know you could have you know brexit could have been like a side issue for you know you could have had your department of exit in the european union which could have been a, a small thing and they spent years planning for this and preparing and you could have even said, you know, okay, we're going to trigger Article 50. At the end of that, we're going to transition into the EA, which is a minor change um, for our domestic economy. You know, we can plan for that in a year. And the next five years, we're going to spend working out as a country what we want to do next. You know, because at the end of that, you could have said, you know, this isn't for us. We want to um, go for like a WTO style Brexit. But at least then you'd have had time to plan for it. You know, now we're what 60 or even 60 odd days out from brexit um and nobody's clear about what's going to happen on on the 1st of november and and even um even people i know in certain industries um 
like my boyfriend's a pilot, for example, and it worries him. And he he was a lever, and he's like, right. you know, if if it gets to November first, um, you know, we're out. See, that that could bankrupt our company overnight. And it and it's that kind of, you know, and it, it's very easy for politicians who are insulated from it to say, oh, it, it'll all be fine. Um. And, and I think the fact they're going to spend a hundred million pounds on an advertising campaign telling us all fine, telling us it's all going to be fine, is a sort of good sign that it's not fine. Like it's, you know, if if it was going to be fine, I think we'd all feel it was going to be fine, and it, it, it's just not a nice thing at the minute. And, and I think everyone would appreciate certainty, one way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I very much agree. I, and and it, it sort of disturbs me that the hundred million ad campaign is going to have the tagline "Get Ready," which is sort of no. You you should be getting ready. That's what you were meant to do. It's not for us <laughs> to do it. Um, it's, oh, when I, when I heard that's what they were going to call it, I just think it sounds like apocalyptic. Yeah, like you know, aliens are coming. You know, kiss your loved ones goodbye. You know, getting get prepared in your, your, your nuclear bunkers. It's, yeah, it's a film tagline. It's not, yeah. Like it doesn't inspire you with confidence. It should be, you know, if anything, we're ready, you know, with pictures of, you know, smiling farmers and you know smiling doctors with their hundreds of you know stocked medicines. Yeah, yeah, and and Dover being set up properly and things like that. It's, I mean, it's 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 one of the <laughs> things. You know, I, I sort of I feel like what this is really reflected on is you know the big arguments about Brexit and Leave or Remain, which is a a very valid argument. But the I feel like it's exposed the how how current British democracy is is not very effective. Uh, you know, we've had uh, politicians that repeatedly change what their opinions are every five minutes, and there's been lots of bravado and bluster, but not much preparation uh, and there's been lots of accusations and it doesn't feel like there's been you know uh much that's actually been put in place to protect the people that have voted do, you know do, do you think that that you know i where, where do you firstly uh, i suppose this that my first question would be what's your prediction for what happens next and then do you think that there needs to be a bigger conversation further down the line about how things work yeah absolutely i think what will happen next is i think I think a lot of what we're seeing at the minute with um, things like prorogue in Parliament and ad campaigns and all this, I think it's a huge dick-swinging exercise from Downing Street to frighten MPs into backing whatever deal comes Boris comes back with. I think he might... I, th- I think when, when he goes to the EU summit in well, middle of September or October, whenever it's going to be... I think he'll say to them, "Look, we're happy to pass the withdrawal agreement, but you need to give me something I can, I can take back. You know, give me, you know, something on the back." Because I think MPs are sort of blindsided by the backstop, and I think if he could get a change to that, even if it was something like, "We'll time limit it for ten years," something that gives them, gives the EU plenty of time, but also gives Boris something he can um, placate MPs with. And I think that might just get over the line because I know um, from sort of my my contacts about 50 Labour MPs would now back the deal. And I think that might just swing it. And people who were previously against the deal are now in the government. So if you look at your people like your Jacob Rees-Mogg, people who were once the sort of um, the litmus test for who was going to back it or not, 
he now can't back it because he's he's leader of the house. You know, he wormed all the people who are now um, sort of <laughs> cheerleading for it. They were the ones previously sort of against it, if that, if that makes sense. So they now don't have a choice. And I think the ERG, you've got a tiny um, sort of cabal of headbangers. Um, and, and I think it'd be very easy now for for Boris to say, look, you know, the ERG hardline is maybe 15, 20 people. You know, I don't want no deal. Back this deal. And then I, I think Boris's thing, will he will say to Corbyn, if you back this deal, get it over the line, we will have a, a general election straight after. And I think that temptation will be too good for Corbyn to turn down because he gets what he wants. You know, he gets his general election. Which he'll probably lose, but he'll he'll you know that he'd be a coward not to. And if, if Boris openly says that to him, he say, you know, I will give you a general election. If if Corbyn turns that down, then pff, I don't I don't know what Labour could do with him. You know, it's literally all he's said for the last year is that that's what he wants. And if that's been handed to him on a platter, then he'd be an idiot not to. But I think after Brexit. I think there does need to be a big conversation about how how things are done. I, I think, well, I, I think that even after 2015, the whole two-party system and first-past-the-post was fundamentally unfair. You know, the fact that UKIP, um, regardless of anybody's views on them, would get four million votes in only one seat is a travesty where the SNP got, what, one million and got 50 seats? It's... You know, it's it's not fair, and um, and th- there's an old saying that every country has the government it deserves, and I think it's a sort of reflection because in a lot of places you don't have any choice. You know, I I hate the idea of a safe seat, the idea that you could put someone so you know awful in a safe seat because they would vote for anything because of you know whether it's got a blue or a, a red rosette. It's ridiculous, and I, I kind of think politicians should have to, you know, fight for their seats a bit. You know, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a fundamentally unfair thing that you should actually have to, you know, work for your seats. And, and I think I think it'd be a good thing having, you know, this, you know, uh, a fundamental argument for first past the post was that it delivers stability, and. <laughs> I think the last sort of four years is what well, it sort of you know run, run rough over that. I don't think you can no longer say that that's the case, and I think it'd be a good thing having you know more opinions in there because every vote would matter then, you know. And, and if your whole thing is you know saving the planet and animal rights, you, know, you can vote green, and you know the Greens might get twenty thirty MPs. You know, good for them and coalitions would be the way forward because I, I actually think we had more stability in the coalition years than than we'd had for a long time and you know I, I think that might be that might be something to try um I, I think I think whatever is clear is that it, it can't carry on as it is and I quite like the idea of you know the, the Swiss vote on everything you know, they have referendums yeah. all the time. And they're one of the happiest um, countries in the world and one of the, the wealthiest. 
and you know, and I think that might be something we could benefit from because I, I think the referendum exposed, um, you know, th- there's some people who'd say, oh, you know, we never want another referendum again. The last one was horrible. But I think if you if you get to a situation where you take the the power away from politicians with their own pet projects and vanity projects, and you say, well, every decision you make, you've got to, to run by the public. You know, then then we as a as a public are collectively responsible for that. And then, and I think we we might be a bit more careful about about the things that we choose to back. I think. Yeah, it would definitely make people feel like they had more of a voice in in the way British politics works, which I I, I couldn't ever think of as being a bad thing. Definitely. Um, thanks so much for talking to me today, John. I, I just want uh, one more question for you, really, which is uh, something that I ask all the guests on this, is that apart from yourself, um, and uh, listeners should know that Jordan is now uh, working in investigative journalism with lots of things coming up um, that you should look out for. Um, but apart from yourself, what commentators or writers or um, anyone, really, would you recommend that people follow for um, informative opinions and ideas about Brexit? You know, not just, uh, and I mean this on either side of debate, not just people that are tweeting insults. <laughs> um, who, would, who, who do you go to for info? So, um, one of my um, idols, I suppose, in all this is, is a guy called Dr. Richard Norse. Um, he, for me, wrote the definitive exit plan called Flexit. Um, he's on Twitter and he, he writes a lot about um, about the mechanics of um, trade and how, how things might work. And it, it's really interesting. Um, there's, there's a guy called Oliver Norgrove. He's um, a young academic who um, he, he writes in a similar vein. Th- those two are probably um, probably my favourite go-tos. Many thanks to Jordan for that interview. Um, really appreciate it. I did say that we hadn't had a lever on the show before and he was still keen to talk to me, so that was very nice. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Jordan J. Ryan, R-Y-A-N, and look out for his articles in a number of papers, especially keeping an eye out for a rather big story he'll hopefully be reporting on in the next few months. Several of you asked I speak to someone from the Leave campaign, so thank you for that. Um, but who else would you like to hear on the show? More Brexit stuff? Less Brexit stuff? Anything that might contain an iota of hope, like, I don't know, someone who can tell us when the sun might explode? Um, if you know of any experts, campaigners, futurists, activists, political minds, or just people who don't mind me wasting 30 minutes of their week, then please let me know who you'd like to hear from or what political subjects you'd like to hear about. And you can do that by dropping me a line via the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the at Bro Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group or by emailing me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com preferably with the subject line losing like a prime minister so you know I know it's important and that's all for this week's partly political broadcast podcast thank you once again for lending me your ears and I return them to you now hoping you'll consider them to have added interest if you do enjoy the show, then please do tell other people types what you like to subscribe and why not give it a lovely review on your pod app of choosing or even go so far as to donate to the podcast via the Kofi or Patreon pages knowing that all your hard-earned cash can just go towards me buying soundproofing padding so my neighbours won't have to call the police every time I scream at the news. Now, I guess that would be fairly prime ministerial of me, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks once again to Acast, to my brother the last sceptic for all the plinky plonk sounds and to Cat Day for typing up all the linear liner notes every goddamn week. This will be back next week when the Conservatives proudly break the law, leading to the government suddenly becoming the UK's most well-known crime syndicate and making the opposition instantly change from Labour to the Mafia and Prime Minister's questions turn into a Reservoir Dog-style interrogation session where, weirdly, a lot more gets answered every single week. Bye! 
This week's show is brought to you by Mogs Recliners, a comfortable mat disguised as the back of a suit jacket to allow you to lie with contempt wherever you go. Family occasion that you don't want to be at? Just slip on a Mogs Recliner and soon you'll be looking down your nose at your father-in-law, letting him know just how intolerable he is not giving your partner all their inheritance. Homeless person asks you for money? How ghastly. Just whip out the Mogs Recliner and right there on the street you can be more comfortable than them while letting them know that they definitely don't belong. Being arrested by police for breaching the law with your political ideology? Just relax, it's far more comfortable reclining in handcuffs than you'd think. Mogs recliners, when straight up lying, isn't enough. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.